If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. It's also there in your worship guide. Uh, I'm not going to read all of that text for us this morning, but we will read a lot of it. Uh, now, I know I've mentioned before that uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, which is where God calls Abraham, that that chapter is kind of like the Atlanta airport of Scripture. Uh, no matter what theology or doctrine you want to fly to, you first have to go through Genesis chapter 12 in order to get there. Uh, now, next uh, up in importance uh, concerning chapters in the Old Testament is the one that we're about to look at. Um, if you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know our hope for the future, if you want to know about the kingdom of God, you have to first go through this chapter. Um, it's a glorious chapter. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's also one that can be so familiar to us, especially those who've grown up in church, that we've kind of lost uh, our appreciation of it. Uh, I used to regularly take college students to Northern Ireland uh, during the summers for mission trips. Uh, if you haven't been to Ireland, it's stunningly beautiful. Um, especially if you go up north and you go into the county Antrim there, which is where we would usually set up and do vacation Bible schools. And uh, while we're there, it was really easy to recognize the Americans when we came. Uh, first, we were loud. Uh, the Americans were, were really loud and sometimes obnoxious. Uh, we spoke with different accents. We wore colorful clothes. Uh, all they would wear was black there. And uh, so you could spot us by our clothes but in addition to all of those things, there was another way we stood out. We always were looking and appreciating the beauty around us. And so we could be at some gorgeous, you know, cliffside, and we would just look out, and we'd be taking pictures of it. And the locals there would be like, what are you looking at? I kind of feel that way when we come to this text. We've just kind of gotten used to the beautiful scenery here. Uh, and so I am praying that God would give us new eyes to freshly see, once again, how beautiful this text is, because what it reveals to us about our future and God's kingdom is just stunning. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, I will read the, uh, the first 16 verses. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for, people, for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over the, my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that we get to hear from you. Thank you that you have preserved this word before us for 3,000 years now so that we might be edified from it in this moment and that we might hear you clearly speaking to us. I pray that we would grow in our appreciation and our adoration of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. I pray that we would grow in thankfulness and in the hope that we have in you, Jesus. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So in these words that we just read, and we hear God speaking to David, know that this is the most words that he has spoken since Mount Sinai, uh, which was 400 years earlier. Uh, just this fact alone should give us a hint as to the importance of these words. Uh, I read one commentator say that what the, uh, the Declaration of Independence is to Americans, this chapter here is for God's people. And, and this is true. This is the text that creates our citizenship. It gives us our identity as God's people. Indeed, one cannot understand Christianity or the life of Jesus apart from these words. Every major event in the life of Jesus and the life of, G or the, life of the church goes through this text. Let me give you some examples. For instance, at Jesus' birth, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary to tell her that she would have a child, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall be called Jesus. And then he begins to quote from here. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Uh, When Jesus went to Jerusalem on the Sunday we know as Palm Sunday, people lined up the streets and they began to quote um, from a psalm rooted in 2 Samuel 7 when they said, um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David is coming to take his throne. At Pentecost, when Peter rushed out of that room with his hair on fire, he goes and he preaches his very first sermon. And what he says in those excited moments, he goes, brothers and sisters, uh, can I say to you with confidence this about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with the oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. That's actually the text we'll be looking at this Easter as we bring this study on the life of David to its conclusion. Uh, On Paul's first recorded sermon, we read it in Acts 13, he says this, and as for the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you and the holy, the holy and sure blessings of David. Paul's first sermon, he goes to 2 Samuel 7. Peter's first sermon, he goes to 2 Samuel 7. And even Jesus' last words to us, he goes to 2 Samuel 7. The last chapter you have in your Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus says this, I am the root and the descendant of David. I'm the bright morning star. Surely I am coming soon. Uh, So to summarize, Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again are all understood through this text. So it's got to be important. Well, let's see why. Uh, Let me set the context for you. Uh, After many years of David being on the run, He finally is firmly established as a king over Israel. Not just Judah and Israel, but it's a united kingdom now. And he is firmly established as their king. Like we saw last week, he he brought in the Ark of God to the city of Jerusalem, which is now his new capital city and will be forever known as the city of David. Uh, And after he successfully brought in the Ark, uh, a reign of peace descended Um, over Judah and Israel during this time. Um, There were a few skirmishes now and again, but by and large, God had established David David and given him a reign of peace. And so he built a royal palace, settled in. And and it was here that we find the text. It was during this time that David, uh, he approaches his prophet Nathan. And he goes, Nathan... I'd like to do something for God. I mean, you know, I'm hanging out in my luxurious palace with its, you know, cedar beams. I'm sitting on my golden throne, you know, and, and look where God is. I mean, his ark, his throne, it's just dwelling in a tent. And an old one at that, I mean, it's 400 years old by this point, and, and that tent's got to be having some wear and some tear. And so David thinks, I just, I really want to do something about that. I'd like to build God a house. You ever 
feel similar to David in this? You're living just such a life of luxury, you kind of feel a little low-grade guilt at what you're not doing for God. You know, as you're there sipping your, you know, skim vanilla latte from Starbucks, and you're thinking, I think I heard a commercial that said for the cup of a co- cost of a cup of coffee, I could be feeding some child in a third world country. And you feel a little guilty about that as you're drinking it. And then you think, gosh, for the, the, the price that I paid for my dinner going out, I mean, who knows how many kids I could have fed in that country. And you feel a little guilt about that. Maybe after a long, hard day of work, you finally get home and you're exhausted and you just crash on the couch and you just want to veg. And so you turn on the TV and you watch your favorite show for, you know, 30 minutes. But then you feel a little guilty about that because, you know, you know I've got neighbors who don't know Jesus. I probably right now with a sense of urgency need to go and be pounding on doors, telling everybody the gospel, urging them to believe. And you just always at all times, this this low-grade guilt never really leaves you that you should be doing more. I got to be doing more. I got to be doing more. God needs me to do more. What can I give to God? Any of you ever struggle with that? I do. At at times I struggle with that, and it could become even crippling. Always thinking I should be doing more. Well, this is David. He's like, I I could be doing more. I should be doing more. I'm going to build David, or I'm going to build God a house. And so he goes to Nathan and he tells him that's what he wants to do. And Nathan does what any pastor would do uh, if someone came up to him and said, I'd like to write a check and give you a new sanctuary. You're like, do it. The Lord is with you. I don't need to pray about it. I don't need to think about it. That sounds wonderful. Just, just write it out. I mean, that's what Nathan does. He, he doesn't think about it. He doesn't even pray about it. He just assumes you want to do that. Great. Go and do it. But then God speaks to Nathan later that night and tells him, you got to return the check. You can't do this, which is why we know this is a true story, God's own word, because no pastor actually does that. And he says, I need you to go and talk to David because it's time for us to have, uh, have a DTR. And we need to have a little define the relationship talk. Uh, y'all know what a DTR is. Uh, if you don't, I'm, I'm happy to explain it to you later. Or perhaps if you and somebody need a DTR, I can iron things out for you. When I was in college ministry, actually, at one point I had a girl and I, was, I saw she had been hanging out with some guy and I said, so are y'all dating or not? And she goes, I don't know. I don't know if we're dating, which is just how it goes now. You're forever in limbo. And so I said, well, uh, I can get some clarity for you. And so the next time they were together, I just looked at the guy and I just said, so are, uh, are y'all dating? He's like, uh, I, I mean, you know, I really enjoy hanging. I said, well, well what's wrong? Don't you think she's beautiful? Uh, and she's right there, just dying. I was like, don't you think she's a godly woman? She has a wonderful personality. Are, are, y- are y'all dating or not? That was the last time they were together. <laughs> I defined that relationship, and I saved her so much time. <laughs> so I'm available if you, if you need my services. That's what God is saying here. He's like, it's time for a DTR. We got to define our relationship here because I need to correct some things. 
And he essentially tells David, just who do you think you are in our relationship? Just who do you think you are thinking you should build me a house? Do you think I need a house? Is that what you think? In all the years I've been wandering around with the Israelites and I've been wandering in a tent, have I ever once said I wanted a house? I don't care about a house. I care about my people. And I've chosen to live among my people. Uh, You see, the first thing that God needs to remind David of is that he is an incarnational God. God chooses to live and to be amongst his people. That's why God's presence dwelled in a tent all these years. His people were on the move, and God was going to be on the move with them. When his people suffered, God was going to suffer with them, right alongside them. If they were displaced, God was going to be displaced with them. He lived in a tent because he wanted to be with his people. Not because he couldn't afford a nice big house. He could afford that any time. And of course, we see the same heart in our Lord and Savior Jesus. When he came to this world, Jesus wasn't just willing to leave the throne of heaven and come to earth. He was willing to leave the throne of heaven and come to earth and be homeless. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's not because the Son of Man could not build a house. It's because he wanted to be with his people. He cared more about people. God needs to remind David of that in their relationship. And he also needs to remind them of this. David, in our relationship, know this. I am always the giver. Always. You never give back to me. I am always the giver. I am and I forever will be a God of grace. I'm not going to be that type of God where you think, if you scratch my back, I will scratch yours. The Apostle Paul would later expound on that in Romans chapter 11 when he says, Who has given the gift to God that he might ever be repaid? No one. Then he says that great doxology. That's right. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God's the one who always does the giving. To give you perspective as to how important this is, uh, and know that after this, David is going to do some pretty heinous things. Uh, David is going to go on to commit adultery. He's going to lie about it. He's going to murder someone to try to cover up for it. He's going to do some heinous things, and God will allow him to do those things, and then will later correct him. But God will not allow David to build him a temple and then later correct him. What he's saying is, what you're about to do right here has far more disastrous consequences than having an affair or murdering someone. It's a much dangerous path you're taking concerning our relationship, thinking you could ever do anything for me. I'm the giver. And when God sees that David is about to do this, he has to put a stop to it immediately. Here's the dangerous thing. This is why David, God steps in quickly. David has finally reached this point where he's beginning to believe he can actually do something for God. God might even need him 
He's beginning to believe that he is now great enough, strong enough, wealthy enough to truly do something great for God. He can now become the giver. God can become the receiver. And if you ever come to a point where you believe that, that you become the giver and God becomes the receiver in this, you lose your ability to worship. You lose your ability to even understand who your creator is because God is always the giver in our relationship. I mean, the very praises that we just sung, God is the one who put the air in your lungs to be able to sing those songs. We owe everything to God, which is why when we learn how to pray, our very first prayers are, thank you, God, for this day. Thank you, God, for this food. We're always thanking him for his gifts that we receive. Never are those switched in which God looks at us and says, thank you. Thank you for the gift of that house. I so appreciate it. God is always the giver. Now, when David begins to reverse these roles, God in his mercy steps in. And he reminds David of how their relationship works. And he reminds him of this. You know, verse 8, he says, Do you remember who you were before you were king? You were nobody. Even your dad didn't think much of you. He says, but I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, and I made you a prince. Notice God doesn't use the title king. He's the king. But I've made you a prince, a leader among the people. But remember, David, you used to just follow sheep around until I sent Samuel to go anoint you as king. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say, and I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. In other words, he's asking David, David, who exactly do you think killed Goliath? Tell me, by whose strength did that happen? And what about the thousands and thousands of Philistines? Who exactly do you think won those battles and gave you those victories? Do you think it was you? David, one stray arrow, one slip of the foot, one better strategy from any enemy, one popped blood vessel. Any of those things, and you're dead. It was me giving you those victories. You did nothing. I did everything. And that's how it has been, and that's how it always will be. And after reminding David of all that he has done, he now tells David all he is going to do. He says, I will make your name great. I will give the people of Israel a place to rest. I will give you rest from your enemies. When you read through this, you're going to hear God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. And I want you to notice that. Maybe you can underline all those I wills and then go back to Genesis 12, go back to Exodus 6, and you'll find in the calling of Abraham, God's saying, I will make your name great. I will bless the world through you. I will, I will, I will. When God calls Moses and he tells Moses uh, to go and to deliver the people from Israel, he says, but make no mistake, I will, deliver, I will deliver the people from Egypt. I will defeat Pharaoh. I will lead the people into the promised land. 
I will take care of you. It's I will, I will, I will. Moses, do you know what you will do? You shall know that I am the Lord your God. David, I will, I will, I will. You know what you'll do? You will know that I am the Lord your God. This doesn't mean David's to sit around and do nothing. It doesn't mean as Christians we're to sit around and do nothing. No, when, when our hearts have been transformed by the grace of God, we're profoundly changed. And when his spirit comes and lives in us, we become radically obedient people. We will follow the Lord Jesus and do whatever he commands. God just didn't command David to do this. This is what David wanted to do in thinking he could give to God. I know I'm pounding this in. This whole idea of we're saved by grace, we're sanctified by grace, and you're like, yada, yada, yada. I grew up in church my whole life. I get it, I get it. But do you know this goes against the engine of your heart? I actually know missionaries who've gone on the mission field and they've never really learned that they're saved by grace. I know people who they were actually struggling, ever really feeling anything in worship, feeling anything in prayer, and like they thought, I know what I'll do. I'll make a great sacrifice and I'll go overseas and I'll go to the mission field. And then what they found when they were there is that they they were the exact same person as they were when they were in the States. The same struggles, the same depressions, the same sins, the same joyless Christianity. And they get really bitter. And the bitterness is this, God, I made this huge sacrifice for you. You owe me. If missionaries can make that mistake, we can make that mistake. We don't scratch God's back and he scratches ours. He never relates to this that way. But that's good news. He just gives and he gives and he gives and he asks that we would receive. Another little subtle way that this, you know, uh, this lack of grace hits our Christian thinking is, is just the way we even talk about the kingdom of God. We talk about the kingdom of God and we talk about how we need to further the kingdom. We need to build the kingdom. You realize that that is nowhere in scripture? Jesus never talks about furthering or building the kingdom. There's even a ministry, isn't there, called Kingdom Builders? Yeah, you should probably just slash right through that. (laughs) Jesus never uses that language. This is how Jesus talks about the kingdom. He says you are to receive it, you are to see it, you are to wait for it, you are to enter it. He gives it. We don't build it. It's a gift from him. We are always the receiver. All right, let's move on. Uh, the, the next thing that God tells David is, it's so staggering, there's simply no way to do justice to it. David says, hey, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, you won't. But I'm going to build you a house. You don't build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to establish a dynasty through you that neither death nor sin nor time will ever destroy. It will go on forever and ever and ever. Look at verse 11 again, the second half. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I mean, it's so staggering. It's like going to somebody saying, you know, uh, can I buy your meal for you? The person goes, no, but can I buy you a house and land and maybe get you a new car? And I mean, it's just the reversal. I, I, can I build you this temple? No, but I'm going to make you into a dynasty forever. It's astonishing what God promises him. David approaches him with this desire. Please, can I do this? And God's like, would you just stop? Let me tell you what I want to do for you. I want to give you a dynasty unlike any dynasty in history. A dynasty that would make the dynasties of Egypt or China or Japan or Rome look like a blink of the eye. I'm going to put your children on the throne forever. And I know that typically when we read something like this, we jump straight to Jesus. I mean, we're taught that in Sunday school. It's just like, boom, Jesus, all the time, straight to him. But the text doesn't allow us to do that just yet. When God promises David that, you know, uh, he's gonna, his children are going to be on this throne forever, notice he actually says this. He goes, and if any of these sons commit sins, iniquity, I will correct them. Well, that's not Jesus, all right? Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. And so we know at least at first, God is talking about other descendants of David that will be sitting on the throne. And David has many descendants who will sit on the throne. Uh, He will have Solomon. He will have Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Jeroham, Ahaziah. He's going to have all of these going on and on and on. And all of them are going to sin, big time. And God will correct them each time. God's steadfast love will be towards them each time. And this goes on for 400 years, the dynasty of David. And then it looks like it dies. The people of Israel are put into exile, and there's no one sitting on the throne. And now, for the first time, the people are beginning to wonder, did the promise of, did the promise of God fail? And then God, what's in the prophets? He especially, he'd send Isaiah, and he's like, God's word never fails. I know it looks like, you know, that the tree of David was just chopped off, but come here, I want you to look. There's life in that stump. That's what he says. He goes, will you look into the stump? Can you see this little green shoot coming up? There's still life in the line of David. And then when they have to wait another four or five hundred years until that shoot really starts springing up until we come and we see Jesus, the son of David. 
I love the story of Mark chapter 10. There's a, there's a blind man. His name is Bartimaeus, and he's sitting there. And Jesus, there's a huge commotion around people. Everybody's screaming and crying. And, and, and Jesus is just, he's just having to move through it all. But this one person gets Jesus' attention. He's blind, and he cries out this, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. When he hears that title, Son of David, he stops and he goes to this man. Jesus recognized that that is the title. And when this man said, Son of David, have mercy on me, he was expecting, he was expressing a kind of faith in who would be this coming king. Not just a king to sit on a throne, but a king that could bring healing. Make the lame jump, make the blind see, even raise the dead. And Jesus healed this man. Jesus was the son of David, the coming king who would come and restore all things. And that's our hope. He's a real king from the real line of David. He has come. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He will restore all things. Our hope is not that someday we die and we float around in disembodied spirits forever, you know, playing a harp. Not It is rooted in this. We will have real, physical, resurrected bodies. We will live in a real kingdom where we will be under the reign of a real king. Jesus, forever. Let's pray to him. Jesus, all of history is moving somewhere. It's not without aim. It's not without purpose. It is moving to where you return and you sit down on your throne. The throne that you have promised that you will sit down on and reign forever and ever and ever. We long for that day when you come as king and restore all things. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would firmly ground this hope deep in our hearts. Thank you for being the God who gives and who gives and who gives for all of eternity you give. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.